Welcome, everybody. This is the Multimedia Men podcast interview series. Oh, my goodness. I'm Brian Kluger, and I'm joined by the host with the most, the man who I love to make music with, be in films with, box, and go be barflies at our local pub with uh, <laughs> Preston Barta. What's up, man? Howdy. It's going well. How are you? Oh, yeah. not so bad. Not so bad. We have a great... A guest on the show today that we're looking forward to talk to. Um, he has been in over 75 films. He has four platinum albums. Um, and his name is Frank Stallone. Yes, Sylvester Stallone's brother, which I would imagine through a lot of his life, he's been uh, called Sylvester Stallone's brother. But nope, he is an amazing musician. He has... Uh, top of the chart songs been in so many great roles in films like this guy does it all right oh yeah i mean tombstone was was a big part of my household uh right now i'm in love with savage harbor so yes like, there's just like you can pick from all these different corners and there's just so much to get out of but he's above all like he's just a really great storyteller he is, he is. Um, and his new documentary, which is um, out now, it is called uh, Stallone, Frank that is, <laughs> directed by a local Texas guy. Um, you should see this documentary. It's a quick like 70, 75 minutes. It's energetic. It's amazing. And it has an <clears throat> amazing set of interviews from the likes of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Billy Zane, Sylvester, tons of people um but yes frank is joining us on the show today oh yeah yeah such a good guy so here he is frank we have to start at the very beginning where did it all start for you frank in music was it something you heard on the radio was it a was it a record your parents gave you where did it all begin and there were just some records there i guess they were probably 78s or lps and I started playing, in the, and the radio was on. It was just a bunch of stuff. And I just started singing along with it. And I go, hmm. And then all of a sudden, my relatives were in the other room, looked over and go, oh, look at Frankie Singh. You know, they're all Italian accents. You know, look at Frankie Singh. And then all of a sudden, I said, well, okay. This sounds like fun. And also getting some attention at it. So that's kind of how it started. It was just, I, 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 it's hard to... It was totally organic, put it that way. It wasn't totally like organic. I went to music school. I didn't. I think I took one piano lesson. And I was like, horrible. And what uh, was the first instrument you picked up? And do you remember the first song you played on it? Uh, probably uh, guitar. Well, I didn't know how to play, but there was a guitar around the house. So I just held it around my neck like Elvis Presley and just, you know, or a broom, or whatever it was around, ukulele, anything that was around. But it was not, uh, as you would call, a musical household. We did have a piano, but uh, I think my mother took piano lessons or something. But it, just, it was a non-musical family, for sure. Non-musical family. So you brought the music in, and your voice um, is so, like, angelic. Was there a moment that you remember when you were singing, whether it was in front of people or by yourself, where you're like, hey, I'm pretty good at this? Well, that started uh, pre-Beatles. So that started when they had uh, 
what you what they would call nowadays uh, doo-wop groups you know like you like right behind you that yep. stuff <laughs> and so we would uh we would sing and because it was before the for the advent of like the british invasion so most groups that were out were just singing you know singing groups the four seasons which you know were not my favorite group but i love the platters and stuff like that frankie lyman the teenagers and that was kind of what was going on until the british invasion that now you saw these cool guys up there playing guitars and bass and said okay that's it but the first person that influenced me the most was elvis presley for sure do you remember particularly what song and was it like yeah, I remember exactly it was uh the first time he was on uh, Ed Sullivan. Mm-hmm. It, that was a big, big, big thing. You have to understand, people are going, where is this guy from? It's like Martian. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, before everyone was like, just standing there singing, hello. And all of a sudden, this guy is like jumping all around. He's got long hair. He's got long sideburns. He's like from a cell, talks like that. And, and it just... It was almost like when the Beatles did Ed Sullivan the first time, there was a buildup. There was an underground swelling. So I remember watching it in Washington, D.C. on Missouri Avenue, my Aunt Aunt Nancy's, my late Aunt Nancy's house. And everyone was there. You know, in the Italian tradition, Sunday, we go to someone's house and just stuff our faces and act obnoxious, you know, whatever comes, comes to being. And they just sat around the TV. Remember, TVs were small. We thought they were big. If they were 12 inches across, that was a big screen, like something, maybe even 14 inches. And he came on. I remember sitting on the floor with my cousin, Eddie, and my cousin, Diane. My mouth was just like, I thought this was the coolest thing I ever saw. Because I was really into that stuff. Like, you know, James Dean, Sal Mineo, you know, the, the, what, what they call now motorcycle boots. But in those days, they were called engineer boots you know, with the strap and the steel toe. So I was totally into that stuff. I remember in church one day, this guy walked in. I'll still remember his name. I think it was Mac Weldon or something like that. And man, he was in the standing in the back of church. He had like a motorcycle jacket on and he had big greasy hair like Elvis Presley and Cybers. I remember he was like sweaty, but he had like a t-shirt on with a real motorcycle jacket. This is 1956. And people thought, I mean, people were like, their eyes were like, I mean, it was like, people didn't look like that. People look like Pat Boone. You know, people didn't look. So it was, it was interesting. It was just, so I was really into that, that type culture, even though I was only six years old, you know. What was it like to be plugged into that culture? Because when I talked to my dad with Saturday Night Fever, yeah. he's like, I remember Everybody dressed up like John Travolta when that movie came yeah, out. When Urban exactly. Cowboy came out, they dressed up like cowboys. And now we don't really see too much of that. But. No, because I think people, um, I think film was a real outreach to people, which is now people sit at home and they watch, you know, you know, old movies and stuff like that. But, you know, those were iconic. I mean, when Rocky came out, all of a sudden everyone started working out, you know. Yeah. Guys who come to you, hey, I drank a bunch of raw eggs. I said, well, you're a moron, but that's okay. <laughs> like, yeah, whatever. It's like, yeah. So, I mean, but people started working out, running around, stuff like that. When uh, James Dean came out, Rebel Without a Cause, everyone bought those red bomber jackets. 
it was just, you know, certain people had uh, that, that thing. John Wayne had that it factor. And Elvis totally had the it factor. And it's something that's intangible. You know, I don't know what the hell it is. I mean, some people have that thing where you just cannot stop looking at them on screen. Beatles had that, you know. Michael Jackson had it, but not, you know, not quite the same. Because Elvis was also a movie star, too, as was Frank Sinatra, you know, as was John Wayne. So it's a little different when you're when you're a double edged sword, you know, when you're also a huge singer and a movie star. Right. So were you more into like the theatrics, how those particular artists like broke, like what you're saying with Elvis, like he kind of like screwed up people's radar from how he was interacting with the audience or presenting himself versus somebody who may be like breaking ground lyrically, like Bob Dylan, who's speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, No, he definitely put, he put the scramble in the scrambling. Because there was no one that looked like him that we saw. I mean, there were no singers that looked like him right after, of course, you had Eddie Cochran close by. You had, you know, Bill Haley, but Bill Haley was an older guy, even though his records were great. And he was a little before Elvis, Bill Haley and the Comets were a little before Elvis. Uh, little Richard was right around the time. So they were kind of there because Elvis, remember, lived in Memphis, which is totally different from Nashville. Nashville's country, Memphis is black. Memphis is R&B, blues, Beale Street. So Elvis came from that poor Southern, no, he's from Mississippi, but he came from the black era. And that's how the black dudes dressed then. Like he'd wear pink pants with all these I mean, that's how the brothers dressed in those days. And that's how he dressed. And the sideburns, because truck drivers wore sideburns and long, greasy hair. So he was a potpourri of that. So he was not country at all, even though he was Southern, but he wasn't country. You know, and and it's like Frank Sinatra. Nobody looked like him. He was a skinny guy with big cheekbones, like almost looked like he was starving to death with this great voice. And women went ape over him. You know, yeah, so, but they we're not. And you know, what's funny. Every one of them were turned down by every record company in the world. Everyone. So what's that say about the brain trust of a lot of these record companies? Yeah. 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 You don't know until you know. And you know. And so you've been, uh, you've had four platinum albums. You've been in over 75 movies. You've done TV shows. You're like this jack of all trades, musician, composer, singer, actor. And then uh, this, this director comes by uh, Derek Wayne Johnson and presents to you. We're making, huh? He's a Texan, by the way. Yes, he is. He is. Um, he presents, he's like, hey, we've got to do this story on you. How did this, um, what was that spark? How did y'all meet? Because I know, I believe Derek was a fan of the Rocky series and um, yeah. Albertson and whatnot. Yeah. But uh, how did y'all meet? Well, we met at a, at a club. Uh, I was with a friend of mine, Mike, and we went to a place called Pearls on Sunset. And he goes, yeah, this guy's, uh, this other guy's going to do the Tommy Morrison story, the boxer, the guy that was in Rocky Five, and bad, bad, bad. here's the director. I didn't know much about him. And I met him. He was a very, very nice guy. And he had just uh, done a movie about John Avildsen, who directed Rocky, called King of the Underdogs. So he was kind of picking my brain. We started talking and this and that. And uh, 
you know, it's one of those things, you know, guys hanging out, drinking, just, you know, talking. And uh, we kind of stayed in touch. And then uh, one day he approached me and he said, uh, I know it's going to sound weird, but we want to do a, a documentary on you. And now I've had a lot of sand pounded, you know where, since I've been <laughs> out here. Okay. So I've had everything said to me that could be said. And I said, okay, whatever. You know, I mean, I wanted to be nice. I said, yeah, okay, whatever. 69 years old, like who really gives a crap about me at this point. And uh, then I just forgot about it. I figured, well, it was just a whimsical thing. <clears throat> Next thing I know, okay, we're going we're gonna to start on this thing. I go, are you, are you serious, really? And I, and I thought it was going to be one of these things that would be like a 15-minute short. And I said, okay. I said, I'll give you my Rolodex. I'll let you, everyone that I know in show business over the many, many years that are friends that have most likely seen me play, go at it. So I wasn't in, so to, to, to dispel the theory, I was not the one that said, hey, you know what? My career's kind of not really doing good. That's doing a documentary. That'll boost my career. Uh, no, it wasn't like that. They came to me. So I gave them the names to everybody. They went out and did the interviews. I was not privy to any of the interviews. I really didn't want to be because I figured, you know what, if we're going to go for it, let's go for it. Let's get an honest opinion of what, what's happening. And, uh, and, and they took it from there. There are a few people that didn't do it that I was kind of disappointed. They, for some reason, couldn't do it, which was, one was Mickey Rourke, which I've loved him to do it because we did Barfly together. Okay. Um, I would have loved Val Kilmer, but he was not well, so he wasn't able to do it. Maybe Carl Weathers, and he was disposed somewhere. He couldn't do it. But other than that, I'd say probably 99% point success as far as everyone asked. So it was very cool. How did it feel? Did it open you up in a new way uh, to kind of hear other people's opinions about you? Yeah, when I saw the documentary, remember, I, I was as clueless as you would yeah. be. I had never seen it. I mean, my, my partner, David Palameni, who was uh, one of the investors with the company called Visionary, said, okay, they're going to have a rough screening. Now, I've been to a lot of rough screenings. Trust me, rough, a lot. Okay, been with my brother and, and myself. So I said, okay. So I had my legal pad ready. I was going to redline the hell out of this thing. Nah, I don't like the way my nose looks. Nah, 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 I can't use that. Hair's not good that day, you know. So I was ready to sit there with a list and just rip this thing apart. Okay, now this is the key. You know, it's like when a record guy, uh, I mean, a record person that has any brains, not like the ones that reject the Beatles. I mean, those type of people, when, when you hear a song and you just go, oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that, that's, it's there. It's like when you hear Tears or Fears, everyone wants to save the world. After the first four bars, you go, oh, yeah, yes, sir. Yeah. Or every breath you take by the police. There's certain things when you hear it, it it's, it's, it's just there. It's perfect. Okay. So I'm not saying my movie's perfect, but so I'm sitting there like this, and we're in the dark, and I'm watching it. And all of a sudden, it's like I transcended into another person. Now, I became not Frank Stallone, the guy on the screen. I became a viewer. It's almost like I elevated out of my body and mm -hmm. watching this movie. 
And I'm like intrigued watching this movie, even though it's about me, but I forget it's about me. I'm intrigued listening to everyone else, you know, and, and it's kind of bringing up stuff like in my life and go, oh, I, I didn't know that. You know, oh, I didn't know that. And I, I was extremely moved by certain things. You know, I was, a, my brother never told me, oh, Frank's as good as I am at what I try. He never said that to me. And a lot of people I thought maybe that wouldn't um, have kind things to say actually were very kind because unlike today, guys weren't like, hey, bro, no one hugged each other. Like, hey, man, no one did that in those days because we are the product of the World War II war baby generation. So you didn't really spout your emotions like you do now. But now that everyone's like 60 some years old and they've had kids and divorces or whatever, you know, people are a little more open with their feelings. So that's, that's what I got. Mm. Yeah. Very, very, I was very curious about how your relationship has changed with some of these, because it's really special in the movie to see you reconnect with the members of Valentine and bringing up maybe people like your brother afterwards, as you said, like you didn't know that he felt that way. And then maybe you call him after and say, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that was big for me. You know, that was big. I mean, Arnold. Yeah. You know, very famous people. I mean, to, I mean, they didn't have to say anything. Dicker said, yeah, Frank was always pretty good. I mean, they, they, I mean, no one was, there wasn't written the contract. You got to make Frank look good. I was expecting a guy, Frank was such an obnoxious asshole. Now, that's why I was expecting, you know, a lot of people because I wasn't bad. It was just that, you know, when you're younger, you're full of like what they say in the military, piss and vinegar. I mean, you're, you're, you want to make it, you have no sense of mortality at all. And that's why fighter pilots are 24 because you have no sense you're out there getting it. And that's what I, wanted to do i didn't want to be a fireman i didn't want to be a cop i didn't want to be a math teacher i wanted to be a rock and roll star or whatever i wanted to be in the business so what was interesting about it there's like a lot of my band members from the first band uh, american tragedy that's the high school era mm-hmm. they're saying well you know frank was like kind of the real deal we were here you know you know meet chicks and stuff and we're going off to college. I barely got out of high school. So these guys, after high school, they were parents. Okay, you have to go to college. You're going to college. You're doing this. A few guys went into the service. That was it. You know, 1969. That was it. Bingo. And uh, which meant, how serious were they? Or was it just a teenage thing? You know, I mean, it was kind of cool to be in a rock band, you know. So, but I was serious about it because I had nowhere else to go. I mean, I didn't have any education. I wasn't like I was, you know, I was going to get a job like at Yale School of Drama or something like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I would, you know, hearing you say that, it just reminds me that what I got the most out of the documentary is just how hungry you are for the arts. And that's what's inspiring to me that you just remain passionate the entire time, no matter how many times you may have got knocked down in life. Mm-hmm. Um, like, so I, that I can't help, but be curious about like right now, like in this time that we're living this curveball, we've been thrown by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. How do you still 
stay mm. musically creative through all this? Well, you know what I do, Preston? I, I, being a songwriter and also doing movies, there is a lot of downtime. Also, being yeah. a songwriter is downtime because you're writing. So you're not sitting at home writing in front of an audience. You know, a lot of it's like, you know, racking your brain frustration. Also, you know, I have, th- this is just a portion. I have thousands of books in my house. I mean, I have, my, my house is built of books. If I took my books out of my house, my house would probably collapse. You know what I mean? So being that I didn't have the education, I self-educate. I read everything. So I've read everything, you know, and um, that I was interested in rather. So I, I deal with it better than most people because, you know, a lot of people in today's generation not being, you know, they don't really read a lot. They're not really interested in anything other than like themselves. I mean, I see women out there in their 30s and they're acting like total buffoons yeah. and sticking their rear ends out, selfies, acting like a bunch of idiots. I go, this is going to be someone's mother, unfortunately, one day. I mean, you know, when when I was coming up, I mean, guys were married at 19 already. I mean, guys were like fighting in Nam already. Guys, girls were, you know, by 24 had three kids. You know what I mean? So it was a different working class mentality. It wasn't girls going out, woohoo, woo. I mean, you see it. I mean, they're selfie. Everyone wants to be famous or acknowledged with no talent. And that's what we're dealing with. But, uh, I have stated many times, I did not get into this for the money. I swear to you, I didn't. I wasn't like one of these 12-year-old kids go, oh, wow, man, I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to be rich. Because to me, that's a weirdo. I mean, someone like that's like a Mark Cuban who I don't like anyway. But that's a weirdo type thing. You know, like when you're 12, 13, I want to be rich or I want to be president. That's screwy as far as I'm concerned. At that age, you should be thinking about fun doing stuff you like. A lot of guys play athletics. A lot of guys do this. I mean, I, so I didn't get into it for money. If I did, I would have quit 30 years ago. Cause for probably the first, let's see, 50, first 35 years, I didn't make broke. I mean, we made enough to subside. I, okay. Well, let me put it in perspective. Playing in bands in those days in the seventies, five piece band we'd make $130 a night for the band. Mm-hmm. So if you subtract five from 130 and take 20% off the top, which is $26 and you're playing 160 minutes of music a night, a night. It's no, you're, you're not like a hot item for the chicks. Okay. You're making like $18 a night. Okay. Take home. So you times that times six. If you made 85 to $90 a week, you were good. I mean, that's like four drinks now in a bar, you know? So, <laughs> so we didn't do that. We, so we did it. It was a social thing. It was like, you know, we were all in it together because most young musicians didn't have any money. Yeah. We were all disappointment to our parents in a lot of ways, you know, because everyone wants their parents to be a doctor or a lawyer or a businessman. So we were kind of outcast in a way. Yeah. But I guess when you're doing that, you're also networking with a lot of people. You must have crossed paths with a lot oh, of yeah. people going that way, right? Oh, yeah. Are, yeah. are there any people that you cross paths with that eventually you start, you, they became known or that you followed their career? John Oates. 
mm -hmm. Daryl Hall, uh, Richie Sambora. Richie was a teenager. He was playing in a bar band called the FM band. I mean, he was a kid. But I mean, he, he had the rock and roll vibe, though, because he had like the good hair, you know, he, even though he was a teenager, you know, he was an only child. So his parents doted on him. He had like really better guitars than we did. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, he had like black Les Paul customs back then, but he was actually very good. So he was actually for his age, he was way more advanced as far as a player than I was at his age. And, you know, you saw it happen with Bon Jovi. I mean, he's actually the most talented guy in the group, truth be told. And um, him and Daryl Hall, I mean, John Oates. I mean, John Oates and I were in a band together. You know, he was, again, but here's the situation. He's a college kid, him and Daryl, going to Temple University. Again, we're a bunch of, like, misanthropes, you know. like. And he graduates college. What do guys do when they graduate college in 1970? Backpack around Europe. There goes the group. You know what I mean? <laughs> And I'm sitting there, you know, holding the bag, trying to, then I had to put another group together. But between that time, I was just a folk artist, you know, playing in Greenwich Village, you know, open mic night, just doing what, you know, whatever guys do. Right. No, that's great. Um, so in the documentary, it was so wonderful to know that you do great voices and great impressions of people. Oh. And so the John Travolta and Sly bit was so amazing and oh. i guess it's just spending so much time with them right well it was like star wars i mean it was like you know that bar scene in star wars is like these two iconic guys talking to each other but yeah. in my sick mind i'm thinking this is rocky talking to barbarino from welcome back <laughs> cotter and they're commiserating so you know he's there, he's very upset you know he's the director you know got a problem with the movie you know yeah, swear to God, yeah. John's got these big teeth like this. Yeah, swear to God, yeah. Like, you can't tell if he's mad or not. He's got like this frozen, yeah, yeah, you do the movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know, we're going to do something, you know. So these guys are going back and forth, and I'm just like kind of silently cracking up. But uh, when they decided to use my music, I almost had a heart attack. I mean, because remember, I've dealt with 20 some years of constant rejection. Or acceptance, but right away on the tail end of it comes, you know, the fighter pilot augering on the tail gunner. You know what I mean? And <laughs> you got to start again. So I've had to start over again hundreds of times. Even, but, but even in smaller arenas, you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah. oh, I got this new bass player. This group's going to be great. Oh, he got his girlfriend pregnant. He can't join the band. Ah. There's always something. There was always something. So only when I, the most reliable person I could think of was myself. So I went out as a solo artist for a long time. And it was acoustic, you know, just playing coffee houses. And I actually kind of liked it. It was a very lonely life. I mean, you know, it's, there was a lot of despair because I was suffering at that time from uh, severe anxiety and panic attacks, which nobody knew what those were. Nobody knew it. No one addressed it. There was nothing out there. Oh, drink some warm milk and you'll be able to, you know, I mean, so I was living through this thing and had to function at the same time, which I did. So when I was on stage, I was fine. So the more I could be on stage, I was fine, you know, and uh, hopefully I grew out of it. But I mean, it, it was 
Anybody that suffers from panic attacks or anxiety attacks will tell you it is not fun. Mm-hmm. And millions of people suffer from it. But I didn't know. I thought I was actually losing my mind. I thought I was possessed by like Charles Manson or something. I'm serious. I was, I thought this is someone put a hex on me. No, I living nightmare. No. Yeah. I know. I, I get where you're coming from. Mine crept up only when I was driving at some point. So it was a really interesting. Yeah. But yeah, you grow out of it. (laughs) And mine was like 24 hours a day. I mean, I'd look at a girl and all of a sudden, you know, and I would grow out in front of the forehead. It's like, oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, that's why my dating life sucked for all those years. You know, everyone turned into a gargoyle. (laughs) So in the doc, in, um, in, in the documentary, they touch on it a little bit, but I've got to ask, um, how did your relationship start with Howard Stern? Because I know you've been a guest on the show several times and, I know I remember the boxing match. I remember all of that. But how's your relationship with Stern? How did that come to be? Well, how it started was uh, I was living out here and a friend of mine in Philadelphia, Steve Rothberg, goes, oh, you go, listen to this guy, Howard Stern. Now, he was only on three stations. He was in Washington, uh, New York, and Philadelphia. That's it. You know. And for some, I don't know how I did it, but I got on the show. Now, this was when he was on three stations and he had a symbol. I mean, really, it was just Robin, Fred and he and Gary. That's it. Small, 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 small. So I went on and, you know, just talking. I mean, because I guess I was somewhat famous for the the audience he was getting. No, and it wasn't as dirty like it became like all that crazy stuff. It was just kind of slapstick, sticky stuff, you know. And then I became like a, you know, a guest. And, you know, I did this Christmas show. I did a few things. I did one show with my mother. So I used to go on a lot. And I thought I was like good friends with them. And then I got sucked into this uh, Geraldo fight, which I did not want to do. Because I hadn't been in the ring in 12 years. You know, in those days I smoked. And I, I hadn't been in the ring. I was in fighting shape. And I, I went in there and Geraldo was on the speakerphone with Howard on the air talking about that he's training in boxing and he'll fight any celebrity. Uh, and then also Andrew Dice, Andrew Dice Clay was there. goes, oh, did you ever box? I said, yeah, I used to fight the amateurs. Oh, you got to fight Geraldo. I go, no, I don't. I won't fight Geraldo. And they just kept breaking my balls constantly. Howard would call me, wake me up. Are you going to fight Geraldo? I go, no, I do not want to get up at 5.30 and do road work. I don't want to go back at the gym at 40 years old, getting banged around by these 21-year-old cats and stuff. Oh, you got to do it. It'll be great. We could sell out Nassau Auditorium. I'm going, okay, Nassau Auditorium. I was broke. But I had no, see, I never had any mentors. I didn't have any people behind me that were smart saying, okay, yeah, we'll play Nassau. Yeah, you can make a few hundred grand. I didn't have that duh anybody around me so what happened was he just constantly badgering me waking me up i said howard why come to new york and we'll strangle you okay <laughs> so i finally agreed to do it oh it's gonna be big the scrapple and the apple fighting geraldo so i started training the first aid training i separate a rib i get caught with a body shot which anyway it's bruised or separated rib it is excruciating pain i mean excruciating pain i mean if someone went Bing, 
on your rib, you drop to the ground. I go, okay. Now I got two and a half weeks to get in shape. My legs are like lead. I'm on the track at UCLA. I said, oh, how am I going to do this, man? So I, the deal I made was I'll wear 10-ounce gloves, no headgear, because I can punch pretty good, and I'll catch one on the chin. The fight will be over, right? I get to New York. My ribs are killing me, and I know I'm not in the shape I should be in. Not two weeks, you know. So I get there. My friend Randy Gordon, who I thought was my friend, was the commissioner. goes, oh, no, no, you got to wear 16-ounce gloves and headgear. I go, what? So on top of the busted rib, on top of this, I got to wear like, like a diving helmet with these big gloves. So they're shooting my ribs up with Novocaine and all that stuff like that. So I go and do the fight. Fight's over. I win the fight. Uh, Harold and I are still friends. As you see, he's in the documentary. Mm-hmm. But it was a huge show for him. It was like the biggest show he had to that point because it was simulcast on radio and TV at the same time. So when I left the gym on the street, there was 8,000 people out there. <laughs> Crazy, man. You know, and uh, that, that was kind of it. And I think I did a show once or twice before, but he's never asked me on, even with my documentary. Hey, can I come on, push it? No. Okay, no problem. <laughs> That is, uh, it's so fascinating. And you seeing the amount of people that, you know, talk so well of you and have all these stories, you have probably have some amazing stories with these people yourself. And did along your music and film journey, was there any specific, just um, otherworldly advice uh, someone gave to you, whether it be Sinatra or Michael Jackson, that just all, like their words just kind of stuck with you throughout life? Frank Sinatra told me once, um, you know, they came from a different era where they were very professional. You know what I mean? And, and their way of, I mean, they might have been party animals on the outside, <clears throat> but they were very professional when it came to their work. And I've kind of, molded myself like that i've always been you know i like being on time you know i like being prepared you know i don't like sitting there doing sound checks all day as you as you saw in my documentary it's not my favorite thing i hate it actually and uh but as far as showing up for work and being uh respectful to your audience sinatra said to me he said don't ever disrespect your audience meaning they've paid money to come see you play. So you are obligated to do the job. You know, I've seen some artists, they're horrible on stage. They don't engage the audience. They turn their back on the audience. They're taciturn. Yeah. I mean, I walked out on a Bob Dylan concert and I love Dylan. I thought it was the worst absolute show I've ever seen in my life. And I sat there, these people paid all this money to see Bob Dylan, one of our greatest, you know, songwriters in history. Didn't play one song anyone knew. Stage lights were dark. Didn't talk at all to the audience. Turned his back to the audience. And I walked, I had the best seats in the house. I really, I seriously, I really did. I walked out. I was talking to Jim Keltner. I go, can you believe this? What an insult. And I've seen Sinatra. I've seen Dean Martin. I've seen, I've seen them all. And they all go up there and they play their hits and they have a fun. It you're in the entertainment business. That's that's what they're coming to see. They're not coming to hear your new songs that no one cares about. They're coming to see 
I saw Crosby, Stills, and Nash. They don't want to hear your new songs. They want to hear Wooden Ships, Four Dead in Ohio, Sweet for Judy Blue Eyes. They don't want to hear a new song you wrote about a belching crane in Ukraine. They don't care. You know? And that's the thing. It's like John Wayne always says, he goes, my luggage arrives three days before I do. So you go to see a John Wayne movie, you're going to see a John Wayne movie. Yeah. I said, I guarantee if you did a, say, okay, we're doing a Dylan tour with all new songs, four people would show up. Yeah. 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 Hey, the Paul McCartney's doing a new tour. He's not playing any Beatles songs, all his new stuff. Five people would show up. Right. No, that's, that's a good piece of advice that he gave you. And by the way, watching some of your live performances on YouTube, I really, really enjoy the way you engage with your audience. You tell the stories, you tell the background before you go into the song. So there's like a communication between you two. And it's called the I, entertainment business. Yeah. It's called the bring down. I saw a Tori Amos concert. I wanted to jump off a bridge. A girl talked to me in this concert. I go, are you kidding me? This is like this is like a Zoloff commercial. I mean, this is like the most boring, self-indulgent thing I've ever seen. You know, really, really good. Uh, and then I have to ask: in yeah. your documentary, they talk about Norm Macdonald a little bit on SNL. Yeah. Have you ever gotten a chance to get Norm Macdonald back after all these years? No, I, 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 I'm a fan. I think he's funny. I think he's crazy as a loon. I think he's funny. Uh, I never quite got it. You know, I mean, I thought it, I never thought it was funny. Everyone else. <laughs> yeah. I, I said, yeah, maybe it's going over my head. I don't get it. So I said, listen, if you're going to make fun of me on your show, let me come on the show and, and just beat the shit out of you. That was <laughs> I did. You know, the picture of me behind him for my first album cover. Yeah. All he's doing, I wanted to like break through it and just like choke him to death on the thing or something like that. <laughs> or sucker punch him. See, now that to me is funny. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Get him in a rear naked chokehold or something. <laughs> see, that's to me, that's high comedy. Yeah. But they, they didn't see it that way. No, that's what, but I'm glad you put that in your documentary. I like this, that uh, this doc really covered so much of what I guess the public has known of you, but then we also learned so much more about you. Well, you know, it was the, everyone has been telling my life story for the last 45 years, but me, no. And, but the thing is people tell my life story that never met me. They've never seen me live. It's assumption. So I, I believe this movie is based on preconceptions. I mean, Oh, well, that's uh, Rocky's brother. Okay, so right there you start with, that's a fictitious person's brother. Yeah. That's like saying, yeah, why couldn't I have Superman's brother? That's Frankenstein's son. Yeah, possibly. You know, so you're being compared to a fictitious character, and, and, but they, have, they know nothing about you. And that's really, to me, really weird. That's like being an authority on something you know nothing about. Uh, so that to me was the best whole thing of the show whether they like the movie or not I hope they do but the whole thing is at least you're hearing the stories but I'm not telling the stories I'm just you know me I'm just kind of in and out little anecdotes everyone else is telling the story 
you know, a few reviews go, oh, well, it was a celebration of Frank. I said, okay, you know, what, what do you, uh, so should everyone hate me in the documentary? That would that, you know, would that make you happy? Ah, Frank sucks. He never could play guitar. He's always out of tune. All the girls hated him. I mean, that would make some people happy. I mean, but the thing was, I didn't tell them what to say. Some of these people I hadn't seen in 50 years. So that was their conceptions, uh, perception. You asked them a question, they gave you an answer. But, you know, I mean, the scariest thing was the first time I showed it to my brother. I said, oh, God, because he didn't like anything. I said, oh, man, this is good. So we go to his house, his screening room, and he's there, his wife, my three nieces, the director, the other guys are sitting there. I'm there, man, if the, we, because, of course, you want him to like it, you know. He is who he is. You want him to like the movie. You don't want him to be like when people come up to him. Hey, so would you like your brother's movie? Yeah, it's all right. You, know, you didn't want that. You know, you want him to go. And he actually really liked the movie. He thought it was funny. His wife thought it was funny. The girls thought it was funny. And I was like, okay, that's the big hurdle. Because, I, you know, he didn't have to do the movie. I was actually uncomfortable asking him to I said would you mind doing it he goes, yeah I'll do it I just caught him on the right day it could have been worse I ain't doing that movie you know it could have been that <laughs> but you know and Arnold didn't Arnold didn't flinch at all he goes sure Joe Montana Danny Aiello and you know and I missed Danny Danny was just he was something boy I did Hudson Hawk with him I mean he was like an old school guy no one talks like that yeah, Frank's like a five-tool guy, you know. He's like a Damon Runyon character. They don't have that anymore. You know, Russ Reagan, my manager died, my mother died, my first drummer, Mark, died. God, it's just like, you know, Sammy Nestico just died. I said, Christ, if this movie doesn't come out already, no one's going to be alive. It'll be Stallone, posthumously it is. You know what I mean? I don't ever see the, the movie. Yeah. And watching you through this movie and some of your the guitar stuff that you did there, because I know you're a big guitar player and I was not privy to how great you are at guitar. Like I'll put your name up there with Santana and Prince and, you know, all that. So I know you're a big day. Yeah. On a good day. Um, So I know you're a collector of guitars. Right. And what um, what's the perfect guitar to you? What do you look for? I'd say my perfect acoustic guitar is probably my Martin D41 or my D28. That, because, and I'd say for electric guitar, for me, because I have somewhat big, I, I've always loved Les Pauls. You know, okay. I have Stratocasters and Telecasters, and I just, I, I, I just tend to go more for the Gibson electrics, for, for it, me. Is it nostalgic sake, or is it something yeah, that's sound like? but also sound-wise. Okay. Because, I mean, I had my first Les Paul in the early... God, I still have that guitar. People go, it's worth 300000 I go, yeah, I don't think I would sell it, though. It would just been cool to have it then. It's like, you know, I have an original... I've had it since it's brand new. Original 93 Black Bronco that looks like it just came off the showroom floor. When I drive it around, I prompt... Last night, I drive around, I'll hear... Guy next... And I'm digging it because I'm going to really stick it to these guys that get the new Bronco. Right. Yours is a fake Bronco. Mine's a new Bronco. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) No computers. So 
I love the, I just like the originality of, I, I love Les Paul's. I think it's a perfectly designed electric guitar as do I think a Stratocaster, but I'd play better on a Les Paul. And I use, you know, like these little Vox amps, mm-hmm. stuff like that. That's- and um, yeah, I use little, <laughs> I have guitars everywhere. I'm in my bathroom. I do. I swear to God, I have, I have three floors. I must have four guitars on each floor. Got them in the bathroom, in the bedroom, office, dining room, because I'm one of these like doodlers, you know. Like yeah, I, I feel like the best place to play guitar is in the bathroom. You're sitting absolutely. there, and you're just like, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, as long as you're not sick, it's good to play in the bathroom. But I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, I like it. It's, you know, is a funny thing with me. I can't use the restroom without either a book. Or a guitar. My brother goes, we're on a plane. He goes, oh, here he goes. And I'm like, <laughs> looking for the restroom. I said, I can't go to the bathroom without a book. I don't know. It's a weird thing. You know, and, uh, but everyone has their peccadillos, those, their little things. Like, I love having my guitar in the bathroom. I just sit there, you know, why don't you just sit there and look at the ceiling? I sit there and throw a few riffs on the guitar, do my business and go. That's, yeah. the, that's the way to do it. Have you ever uh, crossed paths with John Bonamassa or been to Nerdville with his guitar collection? Oh, I know Joe. Sure. I was trying to, I'm trying to get an interview with him. Yeah. Oh no. Joe, Joe is like a savant. He's got a serious guitar collection. I mean, he's, he's got millions and millions of dollars worth of guitars. I mean, that's what he does. He right. works to buy guitars. I mean, yeah. he's got, but he's, you know, he grew up in a music store. His father had a music store, so he is—he is—he re- really is a savant. Like, but he's not a big acoustic guitar guy. I said, Joe, what do you think? He goes, eh, it's not really what I do because we were dueling around on mandolins. It's just not his thing. He's an electric guitar guy. He doesn't even like big jazz body guitars. He can play them. I'm sure he has a few, but he's a—he is a Stratocaster, Les Paul uh telecaster guy i mean <clears throat> he's got a serious collection i mean it's it's worth a lot you know and he's look joe's good man joe's a cool guy good guy that's good um so i have to ask what is your most thrilling music experience both as a performer and as a fan well i think uh, well career-wise would be staying alive because that basically saved my life you know that was the first time I felt I got some form of respect or or or, you know other musicians come in to go hey man like those songs but that was always important to me like again the money wasn't as important to me was uh having other fellow musicians and artists like your work and go you know I remember walking out the premiere of uh, Staying Alive and I was standing there, Tina Turner goes, man, you got to write some songs for me. Of course, her next album won like nine Grammys, private dancer. I should have taken her up on it. But, uh, or Patti LaBelle, man, I like those songs. So that meant more to me than anything, anything music can buy. And I'd say probably, oh, definitely seeing Sinatra the first time. Where was that? How? When was that? Where was that? Where that were you? I was in Las Vegas at the Golden Nugget. Now, I had moved out to California at this point. I didn't have any money. I was with my brother's stand-in, Rocky Three. 
So I was getting beat up by him and Mr. T and singing. So it was like a singing heavy bag, right? So he goes, hey, we're going to Vegas to see Sinatra. He didn't really care about Sinatra. That wasn't his thing. I go, are you serious? So his friend Cliff Perlman owned the Golden Nugget. So our booth was there, you know, and I'm there like, and all of a sudden they go, and he just walked out on stage. He didn't do a big bit, big fanfare. He just, da 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 the music up and he just walked out and I went like oh god it's Frank Sinatra you know and then years later when I met him I was really goofy because now I you have to understand I've met a lot of famous people but this like Frank Sinatra is like a face I've seen my whole life yeah you know what I mean that face I've seen since I'm five years old so when I walked up to him, I was like, like really goofy, you know? I said, do you mind if I get a picture of Mr. Sinatra? He goes, sure, my boy. And I got a picture of him. And man, that was, that was big for me. You know, it was big for me. Elvis, I did see live. I didn't get to meet him. And I've met three of the Beatles, unfortunately, not John Lennon, my favorite, you know? And, but, uh, yeah, those were the three. I mean, everyone else comes like in between, you know, even though I love the Kinks and the Stones and, you know, James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, all that kind of stuff. But if you're talking about the three influential guys that did it would be <clears throat> Sinatra, Elvis and the Beatles for sure. And and that's great. You got to meet uh, a lot of them, a lot of them, not all. No, it was a great, great story about Frank Sinatra. Nancy, his daughter calls me up and says, you know, Sammy died, dad's feeling bad. So he's like reaching out. So she goes, so meet us at Trader Vicks. So the old Trader Vicks, I go Trader Vicks. And it's something out of a movie, man. Now, Sinatra was the guy who said, if you're on time, you're late. He'd never late, never late. Always 15, 20 minutes early. So of course I'm there early. <laughs> and uh, I come walking in the back room of Trader Vicks. It's a long table. And no one's really there yet. I think Milton Berle was there or something. But it was only maybe about 10 people. And Frank Sinatra's at the end of the table. It's just, you, never, you couldn't write this. Pack of Camel non-filter cigarettes. Big gun, uh, Dunhill gold lighter. Glass of ice. Jack Daniels. And that's it. <laughs> so I'm there you go. They go, Daddy, you know Frank. Oh, hi, Frank. How are you? I remember talking. Then Howard Koch is there, was the famous producer. Frank Jr. was there, Jimmy Darren, Nancy. Blah, 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 blah. So we're talking, you know, and Frank Frank could drink. Yeah. Frank, Frank, could, Frank could drink. And he's drinking. We're carrying conversation. And he's not as, I couldn't, I don't want to say jovial. He's kind of, yeah, kind of a serious guy, you know. So he goes, Frank, listen, I you come on with I'm walking Frank Sinatra. Now he doesn't have his hairpiece on. So, but it's like four less hairs. You know, what I mean, it's not like he's like wearing a, a Burt Reynolds type thing. Yeah. So I walk him into the restroom, and the restroom's kind of crowded because there's a bar. He goes, first, oh, first he goes, Hey Frank, let's go sit at the bar. Are you serious? So first we go into the restroom. It's like a small restroom, and behind the door is like those hand blowers. Mm -hmm. 
So Frank, you know, takes a leak and, and is washing his hands, drying his hands. But every time the door opens for someone to come in, it like kind of hits him. <laughs> I go, they don't even know who it is. They don't even know who it is. I said, this is the most famous guy in the world. There's not one award he hasn't won. He's won Oscars, presidential, everything, right? So we go to the bar and he orders like a Michelob. We're sitting there talking. And I'm just amazed that these young idiots don't even really know who he is. So here's the greatest thing. I'd given him my Billy May album and my Sammy Nesco big band album on cassette, right? So everyone's, all the old timers have fallen asleep, like Milton Berle and Howard Kotz. They're like, you know, they're like 90 then. You know, they're like, yeah. So Frank goes, hey, kid, let's go hit the town. Now, okay. Now I had my Bronco truck. It was new, that, that black Bronco I have, right? And Frank Jr. goes, Dad, Dad, we should go home. Dad, Dad screw that. We're going to hit the town. But yeah, but you, maybe he was, I don't know, maybe he was losing it. But as you know, in L.A., this town c- closes at 10. In his day, they kept everything open for Frank and Dean. They could go anywhere they wanted, right? So he has my cassettes. He's walking to the thing. He goes, all right, I'm going with Cheech, which is Italian for Frank. <laughs> and he's trying to climb into my Bronco which is, was risen a little bit. So here's Frank Sinatra dressed up, trying to get into my Bronco, and his son Frank Jr. is going, Dad, no, we really got to go home. Yeah, what the hell is it? We got to go check some broads out. We're going to hit the town, you know? And I couldn't, I couldn't tell him, you know, what I say. So finally he went, they took him home. But I'm thinking of the Peter O'Toole movie, my favorite year. How cool would that been? Me driving around Frank Sinatra in my raised Bronco, and there's nowhere to go. All right, let's hit this joint over here. But it hasn't been there in 20 years, you know? So it would have been like, hey, let's hit Ciro's or Macampo's. They're, they're, <laughs> no, they're not there anymore, you know, his hangouts. So that was kind of a, a fun, interesting evening. Wow. I wonder what the soundtrack of that night would have been. <laughs> oh, God. If I'm. Come fly with me. That's, I don't know what it would have been. But I mean, it would have just been really interesting driving around. All right, let's hit that joint down there on Sunset. And, you know, but L.A.'s dead. L.A. has no nightlife anymore. It never has. It's always sucked out here. You know? Oh, my. But, but his era was a whole different era, though. You're talking when Frank, Sammy, Dean, Joy Bishop, and those guys were rolling in town. They owned this town. Yeah, because they, they knew everybody, every restaurant. It's bringing the broads over, go over to, you know, Villa Capri and this. And they would just, because Frank didn't go to bed till like four in the morning. He slept all day. He didn't sleep. I mean, I'm serious. His sister, wife goes, I don't, this is an answer. He said, I don't know how he does it. Guy stays up all night, drinks, smokes, sleeps in a day, and he keeps going. He's a vampire. He's a vampire, yep. Italian vampire. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, it's just, but that I mean, those are kind of memories that stick with you. You know, I mean, it's he's Frank Sinatra. I mean, yeah. come on. I really hope that you make pretty much like this whole conversation. There's so many stories in your documentary where I think you got like a hundred movies in you that you can make. I could watch uh, a Richard Linklater type of movie that's heavy on conversation. One night in Miami kind of thing. With yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I could do one night with Frank. 
<laughs> my, my night with Frank. Yeah. Let's my write night. the script. Frank yeah, Peter. one night yeah. with Frank. Frank meets Frank. But, you know, I mean, I've seen Ella Fitzgerald. I've seen, well, Tony Bennett came to one of my gigs. And he was sitting there the whole thing, like, looking at me and writing. He goes, eh, meet me tomorrow for lunch. I was playing a place in New York. So I meet Tony Bennett at lunch. And we were talking. And he's great, you know. And and he was giving me pointers. He goes, you know what? That song's good. But you know what? I think this thing would be better for you. It moved. Tony Bennett. He's 95 years old. Okay. This was 30 years ago. So it was like 60. No, longer than that. Like he was 63. Younger than I am. I'm going, wow, there's Tony Bennett. And he wrote the liner notes to my album. My first album. Him and Sammy Kahn. I mean, come on. So I've had my liner notes written by Sammy, uh, I mean, uh, Tony Bennett. I've had Frank Sinatra announce me from the stage at the Hollywood Bowl because he heard my new album. I mean, are you kidding me? If I wasn't on a lousy date, that would have been a great night. <laughs> I sent her home in a cab. I said, out. Because that was, I said, I'm not blowing this, baby. Under the stars with the chairman of the board, and I got some piece of cardboard next to me. Cardboard so, <laughs> cut out. Yeah. Oh my, oh my. And I ask everybody this, I've got to ask you, um, are there any uh, particular scenes in movies, since you're a purveyor of all the cinema, are there any certain scenes in movies that have always stuck with you that you wake up and you're just like, oh, this scene just really inspires me to create? Um, <clears throat> there's a few. One of my favorite movies is John Wayne's Red River. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the relationship with with Montgomery Clifton him and the end and how he was going to kill him but he really loved him and he didn't and of course Gone with the Wind Clark Gable I mean come on man yeah yeah Scarlet as long as there was a chance you know I mean it's Clark Gable that I I, I feel and and also uh, the Searchers. At the end, when he finally rides up and he grabs Natalie Wood because he was going to kill her because she had been ruined because she'd been captured by Indians. He goes, let's go home, Kathy. Things like that. You know, when you get the big tough guy and then you find that sentimental or like Shane. Come on, man. Shane. You know, I mean, Shane. Of course, every Disney movie, the old ones, not the crap now. I mean, come on, 101 Dalmatians, Fantasia, Pinocchio, you know, those are, you know, and, and now that they're editing the, now they're censoring them? Are you censoring a Walt Disney movie from the 30s, Song of the South? Yeah. What are you talking about? Zippity doo. So really now, okay. So I mean, that bugs me because, you know, you're going to censor Gone with the Wind? It's 75 years ago. Right. No, I, I agree with you. I, black woman to win the Academy Award. So now you're going to throw that in the toilet. I don't know. It's just the, the cancel culture thing drives me a little crazy, you know. But, I mean, I am a movie lover. I mean, seriously, I could sit home for days and watch movies. I do. I, I just don't feel like doing anything. And I'll sit back and I'll, you know, sometimes I'll have a glass of wine and I'll watch encore westerns all day. Hop along casting, you know, everything or me TV or 
or American movie classics. Like, I mean, there are movies that when they come on, even though I've seen them a hundred times, I still watch them. If it's Mr. Smith goes to Washington, anything with Frank Capra, I'm watching. Preston Sturges, I'm watching it. And even though I've seen them Gone with the Wind, I've probably seen, oh, God. But I can't turn away from it because I love Clark Gable, you know. <clears throat> and there's certain, there's certain, Godfather, you can't turn away. Come on, man. How many times have you been sitting there channel surfing and all of a sudden Godfather's on to go? Okay. Yeah, I've, I've got two hours. Now I have to sit here too. It's like that with Kubrick films and Sergio oh, Leone God. movies with great silence and stuff like that. It's like, or if that's a glory, you can't yes. turn that off. You know what I mean? Or stuff like that. You, you just can't, or the killing. Hello. Yeah. But I sit there and I watch those things like this, you know, girls going, well, can we watch? No, we cannot. See ya. <laughs> no, I don't want to watch the sex in the city. Wait, crazy. This is a Frank Capra movie. So, no, those things, Frank Capra, Preston Sturgis, you know, a giant with Rock Hudson, James Dean, anything with James Dean, you know. I did a movie with Dennis Hopper. You know, Dennis Hopper is in East of Eden, and, no, he's in Giant and Rebel. Yes. And I asked him something. I said, you know, considering James Dean was dead when Giant and Rebel came out, pretty amazing. I mean, he's dead and I said, do you think he would have been like a, this was it, Johnny One Note? He goes, absolutely not. No, 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 no. He was a special cat. He was a tortured guy. Don't get me wrong. But he was a special cat. He would have gone on. He would have been like Brando. He would have gone on to do things. But he also had, you know, like Montgomery Cliff, they had that also had destructive piece, that destructive nature, as did Brando. Brando's one of the coolest looking guys in the world. He ended up looking like Jabba the Hutt. You know what I mean? So he had a screw loose somewhere. But there's but there's certain things like Citizen Kane. How can you turn that off? Magnificent <clears throat> Overson's Touch of Evil. So I am as much of a movie freak as I am a music freak. No, I mean, I, I thought I should have been the host on AMC, not these yahoos. Oh, we need, get, we need a petition for that, for sure. Yeah, uh, that great be great show, man. These guys don't have any they never did anything oh we just gotta we, uh, press we gotta get frank on our movie podcast just to talk movies <laughs> this is great no, no, i mean i know i am seriously all my life i have watched like when i look at one of the greatest scenes with herbert marshall talking to gene tyranny in the razor's edge the tyrone power i go come on man first yeah. of all tyrone power is like the greatest looking guy in the world and she's like the best looking chick in the world you don't get that anymore. You know what I mean? Now you got the, the guys better looking than the leader, leading lady. You know what I'm saying? But when you see movies like with Ava Gardner and, oh, come on, man. You don't have that. You know, my brother and I talk about the, yeah, we don't have them like that no more. I said, damn right, you know, because those girls were, I mean, you could just name 20 of them that were amazing looking. You know, I mean, Glenn Ford is a guy that's overlooked. Great. 310 to Yuma is great. Yeah, so Laura. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so, but my move, the documentary, I think, I think it kind of encapsulates a bit who I am. I'm a bit of everything. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of, I have ADD. I know I do because I was the worst student in the world. I have to have it because I couldn't. First, day I was in algebra class. I go, why am I even coming? I have no idea what you're talking about. 
square A. When am I ever use that? I'm a musician. I got to know, am I getting 50 bucks? Why am we going, well, uh, if I square that with an isosceles triangle, how much money will I get? So that was useless to me. But I, I think it kind of, I don't know. I mean, what do you get out of the movie? I think it's a positive movie myself. No, it is. And I think that what Preston said it earlier is that your passion and love for creating art, film, producing, even boxing the art to that and film, it's, it's, um, it's a, you can inject that feeling into your audience and it makes me excited to do other things in that medium. And just to see your accomplishments over the years and, uh, it's that's what I got of it. That is one of my favorite docs of the year so far. So oh, that's so nice of you. Yeah, I uh, I was gonna say, I love the journey of Far From Over mm-hmm. in this in this particular documentary because you know it starts with that very important time in your life, but even like Billy Zane saying like he has so much life left left in him, and we believe it because that's what I get out of it. I get how passionate you are, and that's what's inspiring to me. And so I love that they end uh, the film with that song as well, because uh, it just feels like a journey. And so I can't help but wonder, like, how the meaning of that song has changed for you over the over these years. Well, it's kind of, you know, it still is a bit of a struggle, no matter what. I mean, uh, Far From Over is definitely autobiographical, because... When I did Staying Alive, finally, when my songs were accepted, my career was basically over. I mean, I was 32 years old. I'd lost all my record deals. No one in Hollywood, no one could have given two craps about who I was and stuff like that. And, you know, thank God, maybe, you know, there's a divine intervention here somewhere that my brother was directing Staying Alive. There was no way in hell I was going to get a song in sequel Saturday Fever. You got the Bee Gees, one, who were the greatest you got robert stigwood who's their manager and also the producer of the movie and then you got me some schlepper like me here trying to <laughs> hawk my songs now if the Bee Gees wouldn't have stepped aside at that point i don't know i mean because my brother called up he goes hey, you got some of i said yes i have a lot of songs but you rejected everyone so what are, what are we talking about he goes, no no you're you know and for some reason, I think my frustration of my existence at that time kind of maybe rang true with John Travolta's character mm-hmm. in Staying Alive. Tony Marino wanted to make it, you know, something of himself. I wanted to finally, after 18, 19 years being in the doldrums, finally break free. Because you remember, John's career was not doing that good before that. His career was actually not doing good at all. And that somewhat brought him back. And then he did okay. And then his back career went in the toilet until Pulp Fiction. So it's, it, it's interesting. You get a guy like Quentin Tarantino, a nerdy guy that was a fan of everyone. He put my friend Robert Forrester, who was a great friend of mine, in Jackie Brown. Guy was nominated for an Academy Award couldn't get a job so he does things like that which which proves to me he is a great fan of movies and he does what he wants and that's what i think is so cool i love that he drops 
some of these old timers in the movie. Yeah, I think it makes them happy. Oh yeah, you, when, you could feel that all in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, to me, I think that movie is. I love that movie. Me too. I really love that movie. Yeah, I, I think he gets it, man. I mean, Hateful Eight. I mean, come on, man. It's, the greatest character ever is Kurt Russell and his stuntman Mike. Mm-hmm. What's yeah. that movie? Death. Death proof. Death proof. You don't think that's a sick part for Kurt? Because oh, Kurt is, you know, I know he Kurt. loved it. <laughs> no, but it's such a great part because he's such a sick human being. I mean, I love. See, that's the part I'd love to play. That's why I like playing bad guys. I love playing Ed Bailey in Tombstone. I love playing Eddie in Barfly. The bad guys have more fun because you definitely have a more license to be crazy. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It, well, it's like in pro wrestling, the heels always have the most fun and All they the always go out. And I like that when you talk about Tarantino. Um, it's like Sergeant Slaughter fighting Iron Sheik. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. And we love those things. So the bad guys... I said, give me the bad guy all the time. My brother goes, I wish I could play more bad guys. I said, well, you know, turn Rocky into a mass killer or something. I don't know. <laughs> you know I mean, you get the, you know, from being too many punches in the head, he like went off the deep end. But I mean, I, I, I love doing that stuff. I mean, I mean, like, I don't think I'm a good guy. I just don't look like the, the good guy you know the good guy's like robert wagner you know what i mean i don't i don't i don't have that thing you know i don't know why i wish i did but i don't have that cuddly thing that's good everybody on the dock says different yep yeah yep. well i guess we all have the like lee marvin to me is one of the great bad guys he's a great one wow. great so, so good great. yeah i mean so the documentary is just that I, I am as, listen, man, I am humbled by it. It's not an ego trip for me. I'm humbled by it. I, I, I like it when people, the, the greatest thing for me is when I get like a Facebook or something like that of someone that I haven't seriously seen or heard from high, since high school, you know, and now, you know, they're grandmothers. And they just say, my husband and grandkids, and we always sat around and watched that movie. And I remember watching you practice with your band in your garage in the summer when we we were the original garage band. We would open the garage and play with my band in the summertime. And all the neighbors would come around, you know, the parents, you know, of course, with their drinks. Hey, those guys, you know. And when people, when that, when that to me, neat, when people homeroom class with them, wow, look at this. You know, it makes them feel good. I think it makes them feel good in a way to see someone they knew when we were kids make good. Yeah. Unless you're a psychopath. I mean, I mean, I kind of dig it watching people, you know, do something wonderful. I'm, I'm a fan. You imagine how they are. And I'm probably somewhat jaded living in this stupid town for as long as I have, you know. So the spotlight's on you now, um, I guess, in the, in the vein of your favorite pro wrestler. How can everybody see this amazing doc? Well, everyone can go to uh, Amazon uh, Prime. They can go to Google Play. They can go to uh, iTunes. 
And uh, also, people out there, I do have a guitar company called Frank Stallone Guitars, and they can go there, frankstalloneguitars.com. <clears throat> and what we've done, we're, we are procuring guitars from different guitar makers that are really, really reasonably priced, and we guarantee everything 100%. We haven't had one return. We've had, listen, you know, in today's world, like these kids that want to be, they can't afford $5,000 for a guitar. Ours are like 500, but they're as good as a $5,000 guitar. I mean, I play it, you know, I mean, in between my Les Pauls, I, I do play it. And uh, it's kind of fun being a bit of an entrepreneur. You know what I mean? It's just like, cause I'm not really, you know, I, I wouldn't consider myself, uh, you know, you know, what's his name? The guy from uh, Elon Musk. Okay. <laughs> but it's fun having an instrument. Like I have instruments in my house out that I can't play, but I do play them. Like I have a trumpet. I saw, I can't play. I saw, but I'll sit there and just walk by and blow a few notes. I figure out oh, it's good for my lungs. I've got <laughs> harps. I don't know how to play a harp. It's just, maybe it's an ADD thing. It's just, I like being surrounded by instruments. You know, it's, it's, to me, it, it's very childish, of course, but it's it's fun, and the life is fun. I like watching westerns with my old forty fives. I mean, I'm so stupid. It's like a nine year old. I'm watching <laughs> Hopalong Cassie spinning my own guns. Like, hey man, why you got, you know what's that like? But that's what kids do. But I think when we lose the child part of ourselves, I think we lose a big part of ourselves because then it's everything is serious. That's what I love about Mel Brooks. I've sat with Mel. He's still like a kid. He's 90 some years old, but he still thinks, look at his movies. No one had more fun in, in this business than him and Carl Reiner mm-hmm. or George Burns, who I've met. They love being in show business. They loved it. And they, even to their grave, they were still goofy, childlike type guys, fans of other people, and nice to everybody. Everybody. George Burns was nice to everybody. I, I saw him. I said, I said, wait a second. This guy just did an hour and 10 minutes. He's 96 years old. He didn't miss a beat. And I went backstage to meet him. I went, oh, my God, this George, George Burns. And look at his career. Yeah. He had a resurgence. It's 90. Remember when we did Oh God and all those movies? Yes. I mean, talk God. about a comeback. I think I'm old. Jeez, it's like almost 100 years old and he's got to come back. So there's always, there's always hope and belief. And I think my documentary bases, is based on a belief in self, a belief that something can happen, anything can happen. That's one thing beautiful about show business. Look, my brother was an $8 billion to one shot. Here's a guy. That was unemployed, kind of slurred and talk. He was kind of muscular type guy. Totally not what they were looking for in the 70s. You know, they were looking for Burt Reynolds, Ryan O'Neill, these guys. They weren't looking for him, but they wanted the script, but they didn't want him. And it was the smartest business move he did. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And then, you know, even what's happened to us, two guys from not, you know, from broken homes, immigrant father and stuff like that, that can happen, that a miracle can happen. I'm upstairs looking down because 
we, we were not candidates. We weren't the guys going to Yale Drama School or Northwestern or, you know, USC or something like that, where you figure, well, my son's studying film at USC, but he's bartending. Yeah, that's how he ends up doing. So I'm, I am very humbled. I'm very blessed. I, I thank guys like you uh, that take the time out to want to talk to an old uh, song and dance man like me. It makes me feel good. I mean, because, you know, it's been it's been a rough it's been a rough rough year for everybody it's been a rough few years i mean to this day i've done 77 movies i don't have an agent walls with gold records don't have a music agent it's preconceiving so i gotta do it i still gotta do it myself i still carry my amp how you like that i went to a point when i had three roadies I got to still carry my own amp and my guitar and break down, which I, that's the thing I hate more than anything. You do this great show, gay standing ovation and all these people are wandering around and you're sitting there breaking down your gear. I did that in high school. So I'm just going to hire someone to do it. I can't do it anymore. My back old can't handle it. Too old for that stuff. You know what I mean? But so, but that's, that is a humbling experience. I don't know if a lot of people can do it. If you've been spoiled all these years and all of a sudden now you got to go back to grassroots. Some people can't do it. Their ego won't let them do it. I don't care because I enjoy doing it. I love being on stage. I love playing with my guys. So if I look like a schmuck, I don't care. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, uh, Frank. Thank you so much. This was great. Brian, you guys have been great. And it was wonderful spending all this time with you. And uh, we shall meet again.